Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. This week, I'm joined by Suzanne Samarka and Hope Virgo. They both join me to talk about the eating disorder campaigning that they're doing and the importance of this campaigning in order to ensure that individuals with eating disorders are getting the appropriate support. We talk about the march that's coming up on the 27th of April at 10.30 that starts at Trafalgar Square. Please listen along for more information and to really understand the importance of raising awareness and ensuring that people do get the right treatment. Hello, ladies. How are you doing? All good. Yeah, good. Thank you. Amazing. It's so nice to see you both. Like, I think probably the last time I will have spoken to you kind of as a voice, not just on text, was at the last March. So this is really exciting. Yeah, it probably was, actually. Scary how quick time goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, Suzanne, it was so funny because, like, we'd never met in person before and you were sat outside the coffee shop and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's you. But I didn't want to come up to you and be like, is that you? Like, hello. And then you'd be like, some random yeah. change. It's like, what on earth are you? <laughs> no, all good, all good. I'm all for that. Yeah, absolutely. So we're very excitedly here to talk about the next march that is happening. Um, And I know you guys have started sharing things on social media. And I'm very sad that I'm unfortunately going to be in La Palma sunning it up with cocktails instead of at the march, which I am actually really gutted by because last (laughs) year was so much fun. Um, So do you want to tell me a little bit about the campaigning that you're doing and maybe we can start with that and then we'll go on to talk about the march and the importance of it. No that sounds good um uh, I'm happy to kick off and then I can hand over to Suzanne um as after like in a moment um so yeah so um I guess all of this and the march the first march last year kind of stemmed back to the kind of dump the scales work um and came from kind of off the back of that campaign um it was actually something I'd always wanted to do to organize a march um but I'd never really found I guess kind of like the guts to do it because I was so worried as you both know that on the day no one would turn up anyway so I thought it would be like a complete just waste of everyone's time being there um but the kind of campaign more broadly is all around access to treatment. So making sure the right support is in place, making sure the right funding is in place, making sure people really understand eating disorders. I think they are still massively stigmatized and massively misunderstood across the board. Um, and it's interesting. I have conversations like weekly at the moment with people who still don't fully understand eating disorders. So it feels like we're still kind of pushing against this battle to really get that proper understanding out there um but since the march last year we have had some bits of progress we've had some pushback um we've spent quite a lot of time in parliament again trying to kind of push stories kind of share things but i think for me this march this year is even more important than the one last year i think not only did i see the power last year of bringing together people who I guess like you feel so wrong in yourself a lot of the time when you have an eating disorder and you come together and you realize that you're not alone in what you're going through, that other people get it, other people understand. But also this year, I think given 
the way that treatment is at the moment and given the stigmas that we're seeing even within the NHS, given all of the conversations we're seeing at the moment about palliative care and eating disorders and also the fact that there's a general election on the horizon, it's even more important that, again, we're all coming together, kind of standing as one and pushing back and showing that actually people are not OK with what's currently happening. Uh, it, I was just going to reiterate that completely. I think I come from a slightly different viewpoint. As you both know, uh, I had a family member who had anorexia for five years Um and as it is with every story of anorexia, it's absolutely horrific. Um, every eating disorder is absolutely horrific for the family, for the person involved, for everybody. Um, my family member is in the best place we could ever have imagined. Um, she's just started university. She's living such a wonderful life that... It makes me so, so sad to hear these stories about around palliative care and still this lack of understanding that there has to be that treatment. This isn't a choice. This isn't something that is fault of the parents or fault of that person or all of the things that are so massively understood. And I think... In the past 12 months more so, seeing my family member thrive beyond belief that we, as a family, hoped and dreamed for, but probably didn't ever really truly believe it would get there. Um, you almost, to protect yourself, don't want to believe it will get there in case it doesn't. Um, that It makes you realise that this has got to be available for everybody. Um, and the fact that it's not makes me so determined to push for it to be the case. Um, we are one of the lucky ones. I'm absolutely so beyond aware of that. Um, and it can't be a case of being a lucky one. It has to be more across the board. And that's why, for me, and maybe coming as a, a, a caring position rather than lived experience it just it has to be the case and the logics behind it it has to be the case I can't understand why it's not hence why you know I'm so passionate about everything that Hope's doing yeah I think um just before we go on to kind of the motivations for the march and stuff something that I really valued last year when we went to the march was I think and I spoke to quite a few people whilst I was there um, and they said the same thing in that they were very concerned going into the day that it would be a triggering environment because, you know, at the end of the day, there was a group of people who, you know, one way or the other were struggling with an eating disorder and it couldn't have been more the opposite. And that for me was, you know, I, I left that day feeling so incredibly empowered. Like I was listening to the stories of, you know, people that were joining in in the march. We had speakers on the day that shared their story and the work that they're doing. And it, it made me really, like you've just said, Suzanne, like really hopeful for the future in terms of this kind of energy and this group of people that are so passionate about making change. And I think just like hearing the stories that people 
people had experienced in terms of the positive experiences that they've had and the sort of um the kind of recovery that they've had um I think was was really positive because at the time I was in quite a significant relapse thinking there's there's no hope for me here um and it, it did you know it made me feel like there was that hope um but I think that that was absolutely incredible but I think like you both mentioned there's still so much work to be done and it's I think it's crazy the sort of you know particularly in the past year all of the stuff that has come out about the care that people are receiving and almost the the lack of hope that they have in services um and I guess before we go on in case people you maybe aren't aware of that can you just explain sort of what is palliative care um and you know the kind of things that have been coming out in terms of eating disorders and why that is not really well it is not the approach that we should be seeing in terms of eating disorder treatment do you like it um cool sorry I don't I've yeah I'm never like just jumping in um as <laughs> I go off on these rant like ranty rants um so the palliative care that we're seeing in England is very different from the palliative care that we're seeing kind of put forward in places like the States. So I think just firstly, just to make people aware of that, it does look very, very different. It also looks very different with regards to eating disorders. Um, so what we have as just an example in various parts of the country. So we know that in places like Suffolk, for example, some of the palliative care routes they've got are kind of putting people into hospice treatment um, and then slowly withdrawing that treatment um, kind of completely, whether that's through NG feeding, um, whether it's kind of just removing that kind of psychological support, th support, things like that. Other people in other areas of the country have been moved onto what they now call a severe enduring eating disorder pathway. So we've got four official ones of those around the country at the moment um, in four different places. And with that, it's basically just the removal of treatment. They will have a call perhaps every two, three weeks from a nurse or from a GP. Um, but that's pretty much it. They don't, they won't get weighed in, they won't have nutritional checks done, anything like that. Um, and then in other situations, we're just removing the treatment altogether. So telling people that they're too complex, that they're untreatable. Um, and in some of those situations, we are also seeing people going through the court of protection, um, which is a place where lawyers come together and they discuss whether someone is able to get treatment or whether there's other options available. And in those situations, again, they're just being completely abandoned by services and I think it's it's really hard and I've been thinking about it a lot recently actually just through kind of some of the work I've been doing particularly with the court of protection and I think it is a huge resource issue in the NHS more broadly it's decades of underfunding it's decades of stigma we've got a really kind of underskilled workforce working in eating disorder we've got so many gaps across the space that people aren't getting that kind of holistic support they need but I think the thing that's making it really challenging at the moment, which people will probably be aware of as well, is that there are some clinicians who are pushing this palliative care model and really kind of pushing this as being this is the way forward. If someone's been ill for five, seven plus years, particularly with anorexia, they don't deserve to have that treatment. And that's the battle that we're currently facing, I think, from a cultural perspective in some of these services to try and change that. And the reason it's the reason it's so shocking is 
Firstly, we wouldn't do this for any other illness. We wouldn't get halfway through treating someone with schizophrenia and withdraw that treatment. We wouldn't get halfway through treating someone with a broken leg and withdraw that treatment. But with eating disorders, for some reason, we do do that. Um, And I think the other thing is, is we know that there are treatments around the country that are working. But the question is, why are we not then rolling out those treatments that are working and giving everyone the chance of that instead of giving them, I don't know, some... I don't know, rubbish treatment and then not allowing them that space. And I think the final thing just to kind of remember is there's a real difference between someone who's getting continuous treatment on the NHS to actually getting good quality treatment. So there'll be people that probably listen to this who've been in and out of services for decades, but you might never have had that good quality treatment. And I do I do believe there's a massive cohort of people who are probably in their 30s who've never had evidence-based treatment who maybe function at a high level with an eating disorder relapse every now and again struggle with it but because they don't ever get to a space where they can have that admission or because they've had admissions before the NHS now won't treat them it's I think it's it's really interesting because like you say for any other illness you would not get kind of halfway through a treatment um whatever you call it intervention and then say actually this isn't working now um but that sort of concept of not getting the right treatment I think like is absolutely kind of what underpins it all like I have been in and out of treatment myself since I was 12 and I've never found anything that worked um and you know I have been in a lucky situation where things have been offered to me but they haven't been the right things and it's only been the past year that I have been in a very very fortunate position that I could reach out for private treatment um and being able to explore different therapists and their models and find the one that's worked for me. But I'm finally seeing improvements. But, you know, not everybody, I, I understand I'm so fortunate in that position that I can do that. And not everybody can do that. But it's, I just think it's crazy that it's almost, well, one, it's a postcode lottery, I think, from what you're saying. And I think I've heard that before in terms of where you're based in the country depends on what treatment you're going to get. Um, but it's, it's this stigma that the treatment you know obviously I think treatment does require the individual to participate and stuff like that but we have to recognize that when somebody is really 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 ill from an eating disorder they their brain is so starved that you can't you know, you can't put that on them to get better. And I think that's what we're currently doing is expecting somebody with an eating disorder to just kind of say, oh, yeah, sorry, I'm ready. Yeah, like I'll engage in treatment now. And unfortunately, I think that is what's a a nuance about eating disorders is that that's not how it works. And until we recognize that, I think we're just kind of barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, I do think there is such a focus, isn't there, on that kind of find your motivation and get well. Mm-hmm. And I know that I I talk about it from like a place where I'm much further along in my recovery than other people, where I, I know what I need to do to stay well. I know what I need to do to get to that final bit. I know what my motivations are to get well, but it doesn't always make it any easier. And I think particularly when you're kind of at earlier stages in your recovery and like you said you have a really malnourished brain actually you can't think you can't think like that that's just the reality and I remember when I was when I was really unwell like I had so much fear 
around that part of my recovery and people would always be like oh just think about why you want to get well and I'd be like yeah well I know I want to have a child one day but I'd be like that's so many years away that like I can't even think about that now because actually when it comes to it I'll make it work even though that's again not how it works but I think a lot of it comes back to again like the lack of funding that's going into researching these treatments and also that fixation when you have had an eating disorder to kind of keep people at really set BMI brackets, because then again, their brain isn't going to fully recover. So there's all of this work that needs to be done to educate the workforce on this, but also at the same time, making sure that people are having the best chance of their own recoveries with the right understanding of things around nutrition, with understanding exercise, with understanding themselves more broadly. I think also just to that point, what I've never understood is that the the services a lot of the time from our experience don't seem to understand that not everyone fits in the same box um you know not everybody has the same motivations not everybody has the same bad days or the same triggers or and it just bewildered me as to how the people that were meant to be helping and from a, a parent's or a carer's perspective you're you're so aghast with what's going on you have no idea you've never had any exposure to eating disorders until it's on your doorstep um, and then you're expected to become all things that you don't know how to be and these people are telling you well, this is how it is and you you know that that is not how it is for your loved one mm. so how can everybody be the same and it and to your point around palliative care it feels like if you don't fit in that box then that's potentially the next option we'll look at and and that's got to change mm. yeah i think also kind of just going back to the whole motivation thing <laughs> I I found something really interesting recently in that like when I was kind of at my most ill like like you were saying hope you know you think oh you know when I'm when you know in years time I want to have a child or whatever or in x amount of years I want to do this sort of thing in that moment right there and then like all I could think about was my weight and the calories that I was consuming and so to, to me to think about those larger goals like I I did I would say them because I felt like I needed to say them but I didn't actually mean them and it was only when I then started to actually engage in recovery and actually start to have more energy to enjoy life I realized oh my god I'm missing out on a lot of things here and now I want this mm -hmm. but I think that so much of the time because of the care that we are providing to patients I think people do just kind of say what they think they need to say in order to kind of get the treatment that they deserve or kind of you know gain the weight that they might need to gain you know if that's even a possibility to like you were saying hope tick that BMI get out of treatment and then they just end up coming back you know a while later because they've not kind of had the support in understanding the psychological issues underneath that but I think you're so right in terms of there needs to be more research there needs to be more resources there needs to be more education and I guess from your perspectives 
what kind of things when you go to parliament and stuff are you saying need to be done because to me that seems like a big old task and you know you're two incredible people for taking it on and campaigning for it but what are the things that you're kind of you know outlining as a as a process that need to change um yeah so I think I guess firstly with regards to funding so we're asking for quite a few million um to be put into eating disorder treatment, but also making sure that money goes into adults as well as children. I think we all know that adults often get forgotten out of this process and this whole idea that when you're an adult, you just don't have an eating disorder anymore, which we know is not right. Um, so we're asking for yeah funding into it. We're also looking at it from a preventative perspective. So what can we be rolling out kind of from a public health message? How can we make sure the right education's in place across the workforce, but also in schools? Um, and then what can we do to make sure that when people do kind of start to show those signs, how can we get in there at like that first point of call to make yeah make sure they are getting the right support as well? Um, from a research perspective, we want more money to go into research, um, but we're also looking at whether we can create some uh, kind of centres of excellence across the country. Uh, I think one of the issues with research um, and uh, Professor Jerome Breen, who I, I know you know, but who um, will know this a lot better than I do, is we know there's a huge lack of re- money into research, but we also know that they often struggle to get people to go into eating disorder research. So I think it's, again, trying to kind of excite people that this is a good place to work, that they can make a difference, all of that as well. Um, and then I think then like like more broadly within that is just that awareness factor when we go into parliament we have most recently asked for them to scrap the palliative care pathways um we haven't had an honest response yet um from NHS England if they're willing to do that we've had a lot of pushback saying that it's not really a thing even though we've like all seen the pathways that have been produced so we know it is a thing and we know we know people who are on those pathways as well um so at the moment a lot of it is kind of yeah trying to get the government to see that and I think one of the issues with with government at the moment is the government seem to blame the NHS for this and the NHS seem to blame the government so it's trying to kind of get them to understand that actually they both have a role to play in this um and I think the other final thing just kind of quickly is particularly with eating disorders we know that they cross into so many other areas as well we know there are uh, high suicide rates linked to eating disorders as well things like that so it's also about making sure that we're having the right conversations with people who are working in other areas again just to kind of get that overlap so that people with eating disorders aren't forgotten in other conversations as well I think one of the challenges for the NHS and for the government probably is eating disorders aren't easy and there's not a quick fix to it and it's it's not something that they can get a green tick for a general election or a campaign or or something to kind of have a good PR. It's it's something that actually you've got to put time and money to, um, and I think as a, a parent, you think how many people have got to go through this and the rising numbers before it becomes a priority rather than a PR campaign. Um, and I think that's probably across various mental health challenges. Um, but 
in terms of eating disorders, I think the the question mark stands. Yeah, and I think on that, it's it's interesting that when you look at the kind of the, the political priorities that we're seeing at the moment, is Keir Starmer's very much focusing on suicide and also doing a massive piece on prevention. And whilst those thing, two things are really, really important, by just focusing on prevention, we forget the people who are at the other end of the spectrum who've had an eating disorder for five plus years who it's like, what about those guys? Are they going to just get completely dismissed in all of these conversations? Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, we know that we have really good services across the country. We've got a freed, which is a fantastic model. But again, we seem to have all of these kind of preventative places in place, but we haven't got enough money going into the other end of the spectrum where people can and do recover however long they've been on welfare. So I think it is, again, trying to like get people to see that and realise that actually there's an economic benefit if we do start investing in this treatment properly at all ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, I think you're so right in terms of the preventative stuff is so important. And and we had um, somebody on that works with the freed model and, you know, it was really interesting to speak to them about it because I was like, well, what about the people at the other end that have been struggling for years? Like you're focusing all of these efforts and, and she, you know, very rightly said that by putting work into preventative models and catching people quickly, that then means that they, you know, then recover and, or, you know, they don't kind of um, develop a severe eating disorder, which means that, you know, they're off the list and then the therapist can then focus their time and attention on people that, um, have had uh, you know an eating disorder for a longer period of time which I think in a perfect world um it's kind of you know the way that they're seeing and that's fantastic but I do completely agree with you in that I think people that have had eating disorders for a long time do very much become forgotten um and it's almost it builds this stigma up that eating disorders are things that you can't recover from um, that do kind of just exist in your life. And I I think we hear that so much in that kind of, you know, once you've got an eating disorder, that's it. And, you know, you might be able to, you might be able to navigate life and, you know, function with an eating disorder, or it might be, you know, in some cases that, you know, the the worst kind of things happen. Um, And I want to ask a question and I'm saying this I'm going to say it before I say it as a complete devil's advocate. This is absolutely not my opinion, but people may be thinking it. So um, I am going to ask it. And I feel awful in asking this question because it makes my skin crawl. Um, but how long, and I don't think that there's like a direct answer, but how long are we expecting to support somebody with an eating disorder? Because I think some people maybe that don't understand eating disorders will be like, well, if someone's been in care for years, they're not engaging in treatment and, you know, they're not kind of working towards improving their life, which, you know, is their choice to engage in treatment. Are we not just kind of throwing money that is just being wasted because they're not engaging in treatment? Good question. Um, And... (laughs) Yeah, you should have. Um, yeah, last night we, we had this. Um, we did a like a uh, an event at a, a law firm in London on this exact issue. So we looked at the court of protection cases, um, and I was arguing very much that you shouldn't withdraw treatment. There was another psychiatrist there arguing that you should withdraw treatment. 
I was, yeah, trying to remain professional, um, but I could feel myself getting very hot and flustered and bothered and sending quite angry WhatsApp messages during this like panel while I was trying to like debate it with this guy. It was, yeah, the whole thing was a bit, yeah, it was what it was. Um, but I think, yeah, and I do, I think it's really interesting. I think firstly, so I get messages from people who have been and are on palliative care at the moment and they're really happy with that decision, they say. They, they they don't want to be put through treatment again. They feel like they've been massively traumatized by treatment. And I I, underst- I do, to some extent, understand where they're coming from. I still believe, and I've said this to them, that I still think that their brain is malnourished. And if they got through that malnourishment part of their brain, then actually they might see it another way. But that fear still grips them there. And I think the really sad thing is there's a lot of people who and I don't know the statistics but there are a lot of people who will have been in and out of treatment centers for an extremely long time who will have been restrained they might have felt bullied they might have been abused by staff they might have been ng fed for decades and for them they probably don't want to go back into treatment as well so if you look at it from their point of view first before looking at it from your kind of when should we do that I think for some of those people, like I say, I understand why they're feeling that. But I think the reason they feel that is because they've never been given that proper, adequate treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing on that, I think, which is really important, is not treatment which is enforced on an individual. It doesn't have to be like a coercive treatment. It can still be positive and We know from a lot of the research that's come out over the last couple of years that that coercive treatment isn't always a bad thing, that actually in more cases than not, people are thankful and grateful for it afterwards, as long as they've had the right therapeutic support around them as well. So I I personally believe that there's no timeline on this, that we should never withdraw treatment. And people who say that we should withdraw treatment, I think firstly, if they go through the court of protection, as an example, I think it's NHS trusts are trying to cover themselves because they feel so ashamed they haven't got the resources to treat that individual and I think the second thing is is actually if we haven't given the person the best chance of life then actually we just shouldn't be withdrawing treatment we wouldn't do it for another illness so why are we thinking about doing it for eating disorders and I think the sad thing is is people with eating disorders are often seen as collateral damage in all of these arguments and I wonder whether part of that is obviously stigma underfunding all of that but whether there's this still this undertone that people with eating disorders are just difficult people and a lot of the time they're still just viewed as females and if it was viewed as a an illness that covered all genders maybe there'd be more investment into them more broadly I think that's a really interesting point and I think also it's reiterating that Going back to asking someone who's suffering from an eating disorder, do you want palliative care? Now, I have issues with with that in general. There were a number of things along the way that you're asking and that there's a whole argument of human rights and all sorts. But obviously that person is, is ill at that point in time. So the argument, I suppose, is... Are they in the right place to answer that question? There's for and against, I'm sure. But I come from a family where there have been um, various mental health challenges, whether that be depression, schizophrenia, 
Um, none of those were ever given up on, ever. Um, they were ongoing treatments forever. That was the view. There was never a, especially, well, any of them, actually. It was just a, you might have to have this medication or this treatment forever. So why is that even a question for something else? And I think from from my perspective, if if we're pulling back the layers on this question, is it coming back down to money? And that that shouldn't be allowed. That's and and if that is allowed and you know, people will say, well, we've got to look at the country's finances, I'm sure. Um, then it can't be one rule for some and one rule for others. It's got to be the case across the board. So why would it be that, well, sorry, you've had an eating disorder for X amount of time, we've given up on you now. Um, but actually, you've had depression or schizophrenia for 10 years but your treatment will be ongoing for your life that I don't quite understand I think the other thing as well is that people who make those decisions will justify it and say that it's the person wants it but I'm and I'm I don't know whether you've been in this space as well but I know for me I have had I had moments when I was in the height of my illness when I wanted to die when I would have wanted to move on to palliative care I've had moments since I've recovered like been in recovery when I thought do you know what I just want that suffering to end and I, I do think it's there will be people probably again who listen to this who feel like that at the moment who want the suffering to end and it feels like that's the only way out but I, I guess it's remembering that people change their minds and we can't withdraw treatment one day again because someone has said, oh, I don't want to be alive anymore because I've got an eating disorder, if they haven't been offered that chance to recover. Well, I think to that point, it would be really interesting if you were saying the same things to someone who was suicidal, which at a time where, rightly so, suicide is talked about more than ever, which is brilliant, Suicide is a short-term fix to a long-term problem. Um, so actually, if you're saying to somebody who's got an eating disorder, well, we can put you on palliative care, going back to that point, well, that solves all my problems because actually I'm done suffering. And that's a similar sort of, that's what I'm hearing. Um, so I don't understand how that can even be an option. And what what I really don't understand is how we can do the same things. And if we are looking at people who have been in treatment for a long, long time, often that treatment has been very, very similar for years and professionals have expected a different outcome. And when do you realise that actually... Maybe that's not the right treatment. It's really interesting, Suzanne. I'm really grateful that you said that because I was thinking the same thing in my head as Hope was talking of like, I can't imagine, you know, if somebody um, attempted suicide for the doctors to then say to them, well, clearly you don't want to be here, so we're just going to end your treatment. 
I, I just can't see that that would ever be an instant that would happen. Um, so it's it's crazy to me that it would be that way for eating disorders. And I think to what you were saying, Hope, I think you raised some really good points there in terms of the fact that I think eating disorder patients are seen as difficult patients. And I've said that a lot on this podcast in terms of the fact that if you think about it realistically, somebody is trying to navigate the most intense fear of you know gaining weight whatever that means to them um why that fear is coming up and then the treatment that you're giving them ultimately when somebody is in an instant like that you know before they can even start the psychological work the weight gain is the thing that they need to do and so if they can avoid that worst fear in their whole entire life by saying yes I'll have palliative care like to me that seems like you know, like you were saying before, I've been in a place where I've just thought there is literally like, I I, I just don't know how I'm ever going to get out of this. So probably that option seems like the more logical option. And I think, you know, so many people do experience comorbidities when they're ill. So depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, things like that. You know, we need to take that on board when we're assessing people. But I guess with that in mind, uh, if the listeners maybe aren't aware, and I personally don't know much about it either, do you know what the process is when we kind of um, are thinking about that? Like, is there kind of an interview or something that happens with the individual, with their loved ones to determine what the best approach is for them? Or is it like a clinician decision in terms of kind of, we don't really think that there's any hope here now, so we're going to do the palliative care i think it's a decision led by the clinician but from people i've spoken to again it varies around the country but in some places they have a proper sit down meeting where they talk about it mm. um, and work out kind of next steps um, but in most places it just feels like the clinician has said this is what's going to happen um, and like i said at this but some time earlier <laughs> was whether they're moved on to palliative care or just had their treatment with john if they're being left and abandoned and in essence being left to die, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, like I think it is mainly a clinician's decision. And that's, I think that's the scary thing. And that's when people get so desperate and they want to get well and they don't know how to do it. Or the clinician might say to them, if you increase your calorie intake by X or you put on X amount of weight, we'll reconsider you. But then the person's then sitting there like, how the hell am I going to do that when I can't even do that in the service? How am I going to do it on its own? And I think it's really sad because when I started speaking up about this, um, that's, I don't know, probably a year ago now, maybe. Um, I remember it was a year ago because I just got back from New Zealand. And I remember I'd read this paper and I was sitting on the bed in my mum's house and I just got my baby to sleep. And I don't normally get, I'm not normally like, I just, I'm just, I don't cry a huge amount. I remember sitting on the bed just crying because I didn't know. I just, I, I just couldn't believe it, I think. And I think part of it was a thing for me. Like if I ever got ill again, I'm really ill. Like that would be me. Like they wouldn't treat me. They would discard me from that treatment because I've been ill since I was 12. I'm now 33. And I just was so astounded that that was now a thing that people in services are agreeing to do. Um, but I think it's interesting because since I started talking about it, I've had people who feel really ashamed that they've not been able to recover. And I think that's the thing. It's these people aren't untreatable. It's just the treatment isn't working for them. And that's what needs to change. Um, so, yeah. 
in answer to your original question, <laughs> it varies around the country, but it tends to be the clinician that leads the decision. I just don't think it should be something. I mean, I don't think the approach full stop is is appropriate, but I don't think equally it should be something that varies around the country. It should be something that, you know, has a procedure in place that is a supportive procedure for the individual to start with, not something that makes them feel like, you know, there's like ultimately, I think at the end of the day, the clinician is supposed to be the expert in this. And so if you know, if it was any other illness that maybe like not a mental health condition, if your doctor said to you, you know, you've got X amount of years or months or whatever, you take their word for gospel because they're the person that you're relying on for that information. So I think to say to somebody, you know, we're going to put you on palliative care, we're going to remove your care. If you had a glimmer of hope that you could potentially recover with the service, to then let somebody go in that way I just think everything every piece of hope would be gone from you and not only from yourself but from the people around you as well that maybe have less of an understanding about eating disorders and I can imagine as well and and Suzanne you might um, maybe be able to talk a bit more about this yourself but I would imagine if I was in a position where I was unwell and then went to, you know, I'm very close to my parents, went to the hospital and the doctor said, yeah, Hannah's not engaging in treatment, so we're going to withdraw her treatment. I can imagine that my parents, rightly or wrongly, would be very frustrated about, one, the fact that I'm not getting the right care, but two, that I think there would be an underlying frustration of like, Hannah, why the hell aren't you just doing this? And I know that in the past it's been sort of, you know, there's been, kind of well we just don't understand why you can't recover and why you can't get better and I've tried to explain that and my parents have been very understanding which I've been very fortunate about but I can imagine in some situations it would be like why the hell can't you just do the treatment and get better? I think that's something that's so under misunderstood um you mentioned about eating disorder patients being classed as difficult patients Parents of or carers of eating disorder patients are classed as the most difficult people on the planet. <laughs> but your loved one is going through something that you cannot understand in any way, shape or form. You're trying to. You're having to be a doctor, a nutritionist, a, you know, all of, the, all of these things that you never imagined. And you feel like you're not getting any support yourself or indirectly to the person you love. Um, so it is it, everybody in that family goes through such trauma. And I think that's so misunderstood from services that if people are difficult, there's there's a damn good reason for it. And actually, if you peel back the layers of the difficult, then it would be a lot more supportive for everyone. And I, th I personally believe it would be a lot, they would see much better success rates um, because everybody involved, there's so much guilt and shame, especially as a parent, you assume it's your fault immediately. So as soon as you understand more around that, um, and hope and all, all of the genetic research has been a huge help to us to understand that this isn't anybody's fault. 
Um, and and for my family member as well, it wasn't their fault. It's not a choice. But you you, it, it's a real journey to get to understand that. And I think that's what services really need to focus on as part of um, moving forward. Because you just need you need people to be a bit more human, and and that's a basic as it sounds but the support of that I think can't be can't be like undervalued yeah I think it's um it's really stepping away from this idea that we have that everybody that has an eating disorder like you said um before Suzanne is kind of the same and has the same symptoms and therefore will respond to the same treatment options because that is not how it works and it's it's funny I when I did a podcast earlier and um I asked something like you know oh what's the cause of it and it's like well it changed it's varied for everybody and I think that's another complexity we have in eating disorders is that everybody is so unique in their experience and one treatment that you try with one person will be absolutely perfect and it will have you know the most evidence behind it and it's this incredible treatment but for somebody else like it literally won't even scratch the surface into what they need and I guess that's the other difficulty that we have is that you know it takes a lot of time to work out what's going to be right for somebody and then you know you've got to then spend a lot of time pick underpicking all those thoughts and feelings about it so I think there really needs to be that like you were saying earlier there's there's no quick fix so we can't expect to just kind of have someone come in particularly if they've if they've had an eating disorder for such a long time you know probably over half of their life for some of these patients they're not just going to be able to suddenly start eating and go happy jolly on with their life and I think the kind of expectation that that's going to happen is another thing that is really is very common within services because of fortunately because of the lack of resources and the lack of funding people aren't being trained appropriately to understand sort of the way that eating disorders impact people yeah absolutely yeah so I guess just thinking more about the march um so it's the 27th of April in London which is very exciting what can people do um you know I think the more people that get involved with this the better um but what what would be your kind of advice for people or like hopes that people do to get involved and to really raise awareness of what's going on uh, so I guess in the build-up, it's about making as much noise about it. Um, so we've got loads of graphics that you can share on your social media. I'll, um, if you want a graphic, please do email me um, and I can send them out to you. I will try and post them on my Instagram in the next couple of um, days um, as well. So you can kind of just use those too. Um, it would also be awesome to hear from people who are getting involved, kind of why they want to come. Um and again, like that will help with the building that awareness. Um, but if you if you're interested in doing that, like definitely get in touch with me um, and also get in touch with Han, who might also want to speak to uh, a couple of you guys on here as well to kind of hear more of your stories about that, too. Um, and then I think as well, like if you if you want to contact your local MP again, asking them to come. 
we basically had so many people last year that we need to have even more people this year. And the only way to do that is to just get the message out there kind of far and wide as well. So yeah, any support with doing that would be amazing. Um, and then on the day, um, yeah, we're going to kick off at about 10.30 again. And we're walking from Trafalgar Square to Parliament Square, where we'll do some speeches again. Um, so, yeah, kind of get making some placards, things like that. It was it was literally amazing last year just seeing people coming together with their placards um, and like the chanting and everything was just incredible. And I think the, the final thing is if you have any like concerns about it, it wasn't, as we've already talked about, like it wasn't a triggering event last year. It was it was really emotional. I was like, yeah, afterwards I felt really emotional. I felt emotional about the whole thing, but it took me quite a lot of time to kind of debrief myself afterwards and kind of reflect on what had happened. Um, but if you have any worries about it, like please do feel free again to kind of get in touch and I can kind of talk people through the structures and the days and things like that so you know exactly when things are happening and Last year, if people were traveling on their own. We made sure that there were people to meet them, things like that. And we'll be doing all of that again this year as well. And I think um, also there were parents there last year mm. or people that were too poorly to attend themselves. Um, I spoke to a lot of parents who felt absolutely hopeless when they turned up. Uh, we've all been there. Um, and the amount of people that messaged me afterwards saying how much better they felt just to speak to people who got it without having to talk the details. Everyone just got it. Um, and I think it was just that real undertone of hope and we're all here for the right reasons and for each other and everyone's really supportive of each other um so absolutely if there's any family members um do come there there'll be heaps of us um and you know we would love to uh meet family members that are, are thinking about it or want to do something but feel like they don't know what or want to talk to someone but don't really want to talk to someone get it you know there's a lot of us that get it so come and join us yeah absolutely and and I can speak volumes to that in that it was just such an incredible day um and being able to meet other people and hear their stories um and just make friends as well it was really really nice to just build on the community um that you know we have because I think that's one thing that's very unique about eating disorder recovery and the eating disorder space is the community is strong um, and that's why I have every faith that you know we're going to be able to make change here because we are all so dedicated and passionate about what we do so thank you both so much um, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you um, and yeah just thank you for sharing everything that you have and I will speak to you soon thanks so much Again. for having us thank you if you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.